0: Welcome to the Grand Jules podcast. I'm your host, James Dixon, and on the Grand Jules, we like to explore the cherished connection between individuals and their beloved sporting grounds. In this episode, we have the absolute privilege of being joined by a radio legend. If you've taken a late night drive in the UK over the past few years, there's a strong chance the voice accompanying you was none other than the BBC's Dotton Adebayo. Born in Nigeria in 1959, just a year before that country gained independence from Britain, Dotton moved to London aged just six, initially moving to Wimbledon before his family relocated to north of the river. Despite spells in Sweden, Essex and Salford, he calls London home and he selected White Hart Lane as his grand jewel. But before we join Dotton down memory White Hart Lane, let's take a moment to go over the stats. White Hart Lane was home to Tottenham Hotspur from 1899 to 2017. Spurs moved to White Hart Lane from their previous ground at Northumberland Park when a bumper crowd of 15,000 for a match against Woolwich Arsenal in 1898 caused a refreshment stand to collapse. White Hart Lane was shaped by Archibald Leach, the noted football architect, who I'm sure we'll discuss in more detail in future. Leach built four stands for Spurs between 1909 and 1934, and the record attendance at White Hart Lane was set in 1938, for an FA Cup tie against Sunderland when 75,038 patrons made their way through the turnstiles. The stadium hosted 2,533 competitive Spurs games in its 118 year history. Its capacity varied over the years and ended as a 36,284 all-seat stadium. Tottenham's final game at White Hart Lane was played on the 14th of May 2017 with a 2-1 victory against Manchester United. Additionally, White Hart Lane hosted five full England internationals including the infamous 1935 match between England and a team representing Nazi Germany. The match being hosted by the Football Association at a club with strong Jewish links being particularly insensitive and not just in retrospect. In addition to football, White Hart Lane has hosted baseball, boxing, including fighters such as Jack London, Frank Bruno and sadly the tragic contest between Chris Eubank and Michael Watson in September 1991 that nearly killed Watson and left him with lifelong injuries. White Hart Lane was also the home for two seasons to the London Monarchs in NFL Europe, despite the ground not being big enough for an NFL field. Spurs' association with the NFL continues to this day, hosting two NFL international series matches per year at their newly built stadium. So today we're joined by the host of Up All Night on, on BBC Radio 5 Live, uh, the man behind, or, or half of the men behind the World Football phone-in. Uh, he's the night watchman, and Adebayo. Welcome to the Grand Duels podcast.
1: Hey James, absolutely delighted to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Ground jewels, there. Uh, you're good on puns.
0: I thought tie into the coronation a little bit. That's that's a big thing, right? I'm obviously talking to someone who has a little bit of experience with royalty. Is it it MBE you've
1: got? (laughs) Yeah, it's an MBE. It's an MBE. Don't tell Tim Vickery that. Whatever you do, it gives him an opportunity to stress that I'm a member. And I think he stresses the member a bit too much of the British Empire, which he knows grates me so much. So, yeah, an MBE for my sins.
0: I knew I wanted to have you on this podcast. Obviously, we've 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 done a little, but we've chatted a few times before. Always found you incredibly interesting, but I had no idea which ground you would pick, which was kind of exciting for me. And you came back and you said, and you were definitive. You want to talk about White Hart Lane,
1: indeed. Uh, so not the Tottenham Stadium next door to White Hart Lane as it is now, and interestingly enough, not the Valley. See, I, I lived in. Um, southwest london in wimbledon and not the sort of posh wimbledon i'm talking about the ghetto of wimbledon um until i was eight years old and um somebody and i tried to think about. initially i thought it was a friend of my father's but i used to hang out with these skinheads um in the park right next to my school. I went to a school called Garfield School then. There was a park right next door to it, and I used to rush out of school to go and sort of hang out with my skinhead friends who were older, you know, probably twice my age in some respects. And um, they really embraced me, took care of me and everything like that. But for some bizarre reason, um, at least one of them was a Charlton supporter, and I didn't even know what Charlton was at that time – My older brother was more into football at that time than I was, uh, to be fair. He actually, uh, we arrived in 1965, September 1965, and he was intelligent enough to actually watch the World Cup, uh, which was then being played down the road from where we were then living, which was um, in Golders Green in North London, probably not more than two, three miles away from Wembley. So he had watched that whilst I was playing in the garden, playing cowboys and Indians by myself. I was both the cowboy and the Indian, well, why not? um and by when i was in uh in wimbledon we just got into a lot of trouble is what i remember you know as kids uh, with we sort of had little kind of school friends who were like we formed a kind of a gang but really my inspiration were all these uh skinheads um Right, if you ever see the film This Is England, the little boy hangs out with a bunch of skinheads, that was me. And there was one point when I was watching the film, I saw a preview of it. So I was sitting on the ground in this sort of preview studio in Soho, and I started crying. I mean, it was dark in there, nobody saw me, tears ran down. Because there was one scene where one of the skinhead girls picks him up because he's a little kid, picks him up and gives him a snog. And that actually happened to me, my first snog ever with some skinhead girl in Garfield Park. Anyway, so I arrived in North London in um, 67, it's a difficult one, 67, 68. But on the very day we arrived, there was a little, because we lived on a little cul-de-sac, and I'm talking ghetto cul-de-sac here, not a fancy cul-de-sac, a little cul-de-sac of three rows. And then at the back, the the dead end was basically the gate going up these... Steps, these sort of concrete steps going up about sort of hundred feet or whatever to Haringey Stadium, which was primarily a greyhound stadium in those days and stock car racing and a banger racing at weekends. Anyway, we got into a lot of trouble again um, living there. But the moment we arrived, they were playing football outside and they used the gate as a kind of like goal. And they saw us, me and my older brother, arriving there. And they realised, oh, you know, two kids of about our age. And um, so within 10, 15 minutes of arriving in Tottenham, North London, there was a knock on our door uh, with some kids saying, fancy coming out for a game of football. And they obviously didn't know how strict my parents were, uh, my father was. And so um, I looked at my old man. And my old man, to give him his due, probably thought, yeah you may as well get to know the local kids so you know what's what and let's go out and play football unusually totally unusually on the street
0: really interesting is sort of the universality of 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 a football you know it's why the the game that we both love you know is played in virtually every country around the world because all you need is a ball i mean sometimes not even a ball you know i'm sure i'm sure you've played with cans and (laughs) and and other things when that when there weren't balls available
1: well, um, <laughs> sometimes you played with other people's balls. Let me leave it at that. No need to explain too much about that. Um, but it was the icebreaker. It certainly was. You know, me and my brother, uh, a couple of young uh, kids from Africa who, who had been in uh, Britain by this time, just probably at a push three years, maybe a little bit less, two and a half years or whatever. But... Um, you know and now that seems like a very short time but then it was probably half our lifetime so we'd become british uh, to all extents and purposes by this time and there were um people of all nationalities to be fair playing the football outside but mostly white english and there wasn't a kind of a barrier between us because of this football thing so within weeks of arriving there they took us down to um to White Hart Lane. And White Hart Lane, it's hard to think about it because you're a much older person now, but it probably wasn't more than about two and a half miles away from where we lived, or maybe three. No, probably only about two and a half miles away from where we lived. And We literally walked there. Imagine, we're eight years old, nine years old, maybe one or two people, 10, 11 years old. We'd walk all that way. Nobody would think twice about any sort of dangers or whatever. Cost 10p to go in. I remember that occasion very vividly. Don't remember much about the match that you can ask me about. Don't remember much about the score, but I do remember the adventure. For me, going to White Hart Lane in those days was an amazing adventure that somehow my old man was cool about us doing and um and also my pocket money in those days was exactly 10p so i had exactly the right amount to get in the children's price obviously
0: slightly different generations a little bit younger than younger than you but like my mum would go mad if i went to the next village along in birmingham or the, the next next suburb along I can't imagine being allowed to walk 3 miles in into town to to watch a game aged eight we have tried to do a bit of detective work between us work out what 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 the game that you went to you're sure it was red and white stripes you think you you're, you're sure it's black shorts we're coming down probably on stoke we've ruled out a few others but essentially you're, you're there, you're watching Tottenham versus some generic Northern team in red and white stripes.
1: <laughs> Arguably Southern team, you know, Southampton, don't
0: forget. Could be Southampton. Could, it's all north of Africa, Exactly, Gotten. exactly. Tottenham versus red and white stripes. What are your first memories of the ground and sort of seeing the pitch and just, you know, is your first time in a really big crowd and you're really young? Well, that's the perfect question, mate. Um, my
1: first impression was before I got into the ground. I mean, the journey is one thing, and there's an adventure or two in those journeys, and uh, subsequent visits, there was always an adventure, mate, always an adventure. And um, getting into the ground, there was just mass of people outside the turnstile. So I remember, so I would have uh, come in on the uh, White Hart Lane side um, which is, as you face the stadium from the high street, would be to your right slightly. White Hart Lane would be to your right, but also the entrance would be on the right-hand side. So we'd come in there. Uh, uh, I remember there just being a throng of people, so many people. And that was exciting because they're all older than us, and uh, or mostly, I guess, I can't remember any younger people. Um, and they're all sort of flat caps and smoking tabs, as it were, and um then getting to the turnstiles I, I must have had an impression of the turnstiles before i got there but you know once you get through there you're in a kind of a different world kind of thing and we got through the turnstiles and it was just like your eyes are just spinning and spinning it's like you're walking on the planet uh mars or something like that and it was vast but we all stuck together and it was in the days of um stands and uh I remember we were on the terraces basically, you know, couldn't afford seats. Seats was something that posh people had. It didn't even cross my mind, the seats bit. Uh, but being on the terraces, um and by the time we got there, you know, it was like tight because it was uh, 36, 37,000 seats in ground or whatever. But in those days, it did have 30, 000 whatever, every single match. So it was packed. And, um, the the olders the olders saw us kids there and they picked us up and passed us down to the very front um by exactly by the um you know there'd be a last barrier uh before you hit the boundary um and we were i remember standing right there so i'm literally sort of uh maybe four or five but probably about five or six feet away from uh the boundary of the terraces and we got basically bird's eye view of everything that was going on not probably not a bird's eye view on reflection now because when you're at the very front at white Hart lane you're actually slightly under the pitch surface you know you're kind of slightly below the pitch surface so actually the front row is not the best place to watch the match because you're always looking up, and particularly if you're a kid. But I do remember um, inside, I do remember, and I've said it to Alan Mullery, I do remember him coming to take a throw into the side. I do remember the likes of um, Alan Gilzine and Jimmy Greaves in particular, um, being no more than a few feet away from me, and it was it was kind of amazing. It was kind of weird. It wasn't like fan worship that you have nowadays, you know. It's, Oh, Jay Z, Beyonce, and it wasn't kind of like that. But it was kind of it was kind of like local, you know, local hero kind of thing. When when you think about it, it wasn't like it would going. Jimmy, 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 it wasn't like that. It's come on, Jimmy, come on. You know, it was more like that for us. And um, I remember the likes of uh, Martin Shivers, Mike England. On another occasion, I I remember him being, uh, trying to get in, funny enough, uh, whether he'd come late or whatever it was in the days before mobile phones, he'd come late to the ground or whatever. And he was actually trying to get into the turnstiles from where we were trying to suddenly you saw this float that looked like a giant it was like hey, it's Mike England it's Mike England you know we sort of whisper to each other and um yeah I remember him and well most of my time probably the first half was spent just looking around the ground and me being a greedy git I couldn't wait to half time to get a hot dog but just looking around the ground, watching some of the action on the pitch, which don't recall. I, I mean, I do remember some crunch tackles. It's one of those things that sticks in your mind. Like, oh, cool. That must have hurt. And we did talk like that in those days. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, it was. And the crowd cheering, obviously, everybody's going to remember that once you start cheering um this was in the days before they started chanting stand up if you if you hate the arsenal or whatever in those days it wasn't i don't remember any sort of uh, um you know chanting that was uh, volatile in that thing you know it was just more kind of <coughs> Tottenham <laughs> it was more like that <laughs> that's what i remember <laughs> and um yeah, I don't remember any of the songs or anything, but yeah, th- th- that was my experience first time. It was yeah, you're 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 in a world, a different world, and because it's live, the action is live. I think you get a sense when you're it must be like going to see a live play or something like that. that this is unique. This is a unique experience. It's not like going to the cinema. No, you can come back, go to the cinema, I'll come back another day and see exactly the same thing. But I did get a sense of this is a unique live experience. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's, that 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 sense of occasion. What struck me there is you talk, you're talking about how the sort of community in the stands sort of looked at looked after the kids, and you know, if you're thinking now as like um, you know, a father. Imagine sending just you know walking into a stadium with with your kid and just going up oh, there. There's the children's section. I'll get I'll get you at full time. It's just nothing that we would do. But there's the whole community there being essentially decent. They don't have to. There's no real benefit for the for the, for the adults. I mean, maybe they just don't want the kids around. I don't know. But it's just like you know, putting the kids at the front, they're fine. And we're all sort of, we're all here. We're all, we're all Tottenham. We're all looking after, we're all looking after our own. And I think it's an interesting insight into maybe something that we've lost. I wonder if you remember, because you're talking about the chance, you know, not really, you know, think different to what we have now. Do you remember how people would dress? Because I'm always, I'm always stuck, struck when you see people, old, pictures of the football and how it completely changes i guess from sort of the 80s but really into the 90s Actually,
1: i think it changed uh, in my memory it changed in the early 70s arguably late 60s but yeah when if we're talking about 67 68 there were still football um spectators were predominantly working men who still wore flat caps wore long um, gabardine overcoats and were a bit kind of stoic. You know, they weren't as exuberant, maybe, as... They were the same blokes that I used to see at pubs that you weren't allowed to go into, but we used to bunk in to pubs to Nick... The bottles of the empty bottles of beer because we could get frippants back, you know, on them, uh, at another pub or another shop or something like that. But um, they're exactly the same blokes. That's you know, if if I could look at that, who went to pubs on most d- uh, days of the week, actually, even working days of the week, and just sat there for hours watching the world go by, talking, uh, playing darts, drinking beers. You know, all of those sort of films from the 60s, that's how people were in those days. It wasn't the sort of dedicated followers of fashion that went to Carnaby Street. It was none of that in those days. That actually started coming. I think it's late 60s. I think it's just coming at this point. I think it's just coming. Actually, now I think about it, because I'm thinking about this shop called Lakes that used to be on Green Lanes, and it used to sell all the sort of, bova boots uh, dr martin steel toe caps and everything like that um at a time when i did associate it with uh, skinheads not the generation of skinheads that i started out in wimbledon with so this must have been like a year or two after wimbledon in, uh, possibly you know, about two years after wimbledon already the skinheads had changed into like football supporters and uh Uh, whether skinhead culture was appropriated by uh, younger football supporters because it was the teenagers and stuff like that or whether younger football supporters because it wasn't just us, although I don't remember many other younger people when we used to go, whether the football supporters appropriated the skinheads up I don't know which way round it was but certainly by the late 60s you started seeing people dressing mostly in kind of Levi jeans uh, 501s rolled up at the bottom with braces and and uh, Doc Martens so that I'm, I'm probably talking now about 1970 certainly maybe even 69 um, and that was the first place. And it was more so at Arsenal, because by this time I was doing the you know football rounds, as it were. Certainly by 1970, 71, I was going uh, to Highbury as much, although I was told not to by the locals. But anyway, it's another it's a long story about the, the, the great battle for the hearts and minds of the young folk of North London there. But I went to school in Arsenal territory, so half of my mates were going to Arsenal. Every other weekend. So they didn't come to Whitehall Lane, didn't invite them there, but uh, I did go to see them play football there. And it was mostly at Arsenal that I saw real sort of fashion or the fashion of the day start sort of evolving, start, start realizing, all right, there is a uniform uh, to this. And then after the initial sort of bother boy days with rolled up 501s, like I say, in high leg dm steel toe caps or whatever suddenly it started becoming what you called suede heads after that so suddenly football fans i mean kids of our age 12 years old were dressing up in abercrombie coats you know and this was something like older people had although they had a certain style about it you know that was a younger thing and abercrombie to be fair to them started making um crombies for kids and they have probably never done that before suddenly they were like 12 year olds fitting into these grown men's overcoats and stuff mostly in a dark blue uh the odd one was black but mostly dark blue seemed to be the color of that time um yeah but that's when i saw fashion start to emerge at at um at highbury more so than at tottenham i think tottenham was slightly behind the curve
0: and you could argue they still are <laughs> Not in fashion, but generally. mate,
1: mate, if you see on my back wall, that's a Charlton clock. There's a Charlton <laughs> clock there, yeah. And to, just to know that they've got their own problems, they they are dear to my heart because, like I said, it's the first place I actually went to a football ground. But yeah, they have, they are still behind the curve.
0: So you're, so you're sort of you're 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 growing up. You're sort of doing this uh, footballing tapas thing. You're dipping in and out. You go, you go, you're going everywhere. You're experiencing all the different subcultures of of fashion and uh, and London. I guess you know, and you and you're 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 learning. You're growing. You're growing as a person. Did you you touched on racism a little bit there? Did you ever experience any? Because we're going through a time when. Um, where we start to you know, moving on from the sixties into the seventies, where we start seeing we start seeing sort of black players and black players getting you know abuse at, at certain grounds and thinking of you know uh, Laurie Cunningham and Cyril Regis uh, uh, you know at, at West Brom and, and, and others. And sort of does any of that? So is that is any of that happening on the terraces? How are you feeling? You know, do you ever witness that, or do you? Ever, does the way that you are experiencing football change as you are sort of heading into your adolescence?
1: I think there must have been uh, a lot of that because I still can 't explain why more black people are supporters of Arsenal than they are supporters of Tottenham because Tottenham was much more of a black area than Arsenal, and um arguably Tottenham had black players you know like well Garth Crooks and so on about the same time as Arsenal had black players, but i can 't explain why. And one or two people I've spoken to have said, you know, the experience wasn't as welcoming as it was at Tottenham. This one guy that I used to go to Highbury with um, is of mixed race heritage and he you know, he never had any problem or anything like that. And I never had any problem there as well. Um, I suppose the tribalism of football is such, particularly when you're at a young age, the tribalism of, is such that on the terraces, it's about who do you support? Um, more than it is about let's abuse that player on the pitch in any way we can. I'm not making excuses for it. Um, I remember uh, West Ham coming to uh, to high, sorry to White Hart Lane. Uh, I'm trying to figure out the date now. Well, I certainly remember them been at Whitehall Lane a couple of times about 1970 71 72 around that time and feeling a bit uncomfortable. I can't remember if Clyde Best was still playing for it or if it was Addy Coker at that time that was getting some abuse. Probably about 1970, 71. I think Clyde Best and Addy Coker were playing for uh, West Ham at that time. I could be wrong in all the sort of um, times and I apologise but I remember them getting Abuse, maybe not so much Clyde Best. Maybe it was Andy Kokomo, because he, he was like a very slight midfielder, from what I remember. And I can't remember if it was just howls or whether it was uh, actual, you, you know, um, um, words that he was being abused with. But I did get a sense that this i'm not buying into this you know this is a bit uncomfortable for me we had jokes around in those days that you could just about take you know and i don't mean to be offensive but this is offensive you know they'd sort of like go you know waga matter dot you browned off Go black home and you'll be all white in the morning. And you know, coming from the ghetto, we kind of thought that was funny. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. So I wouldn't have minded sort of chanting that. I don't remember I did. You know, probably me and my brother, between ourselves, you know, he'd go to me, Welcome out of Dotton, you brand off. Go black home and we'll be all white in the morning um maybe i i say it maybe because he might deny the ever and I probably uh might have said it to him but no i don't remember but i do remember the abuse that i'm pretty sure Coca was getting and i didn't feel like i was part of that you know um abuse but in terms of spectators though um football supporters i never experienced at least I can't remember experiencing, um, racism at, uh, at, um, White Hart Lane, partly because I, I was a sort of like a regular there at one point, you know, um, and you didn't know everybody, but you kind of knew everybody just by sight or whatever and I said a lot of local community there a lot of local community so it was kind of we were probably um cocooned from some of it you know um, probably protected from some of it because there were people around you and I think you got a sense when you went to football matches who not to mess with kind of thing you know this person's part of that clique or is part of our clique or whatever it is, or part of the neighbourhood. I went to school with that person. He lives just around the corner. I mean, it's weird to say, but you kind of knew a lot of people when you went to football ground. Now I go, I, I don't see a single person, the odd person that I might remember from back in the day. But now I'd go to a football match, either you know at the Valley or at the uh, Tottenham Stadium, and I wouldn't recognise a single Person, barely, but in those days you did you did you know you, you saw the dads of your schoolmates and everything else, and they kind of did look after you, I think, and probably just protected you from some of that, or other people saw, oh right he's with them he's he's one of ours you know as it were
0: it's really hard to other someone that you know isn't it or that somebody knows yeah. so yeah, yeah with the player who comes from West Brom or comes from Newcastle or you know wherever that you know they're, an, they're they're other and they might have that point of difference which is easy for you to rile but you know you know Dotton and he knows him and you know someone's going to stand up and say something and back in the days when people did say something you know it would get sorted out on the terraces if something needed to be sorted out You can
1: look at it like that and say, you know, football supporters are racist and go around beating people up and they're fighting and blah, blah, blah. You can look at it like that, but with a bit of sense, you realised, okay, that's not what I'm taking out of it because I just love going to football matches. I didn't love going to have a fight I've I've run from particularly you know when you're playing away I've run from football uh, supporters the opposition who are out after us you know I've run I've run to the station run for my life and everything yeah I've done it and maybe when you when you escape it you laugh about it and you're all together and you know there's no harm done and you're all in one piece but it is a scary prospect so I was never into any of that at all But there were people who were. And that seemed to, you know, why I'm referring back to that book, Skinhead, is by about 1973, maybe 74, that's when I started seeing the hooliganism just spiral out of control. Um, And I think that book had something to do with it. But, you know, other things. Suddenly, it was them and us, especially, particularly for a younger generation the older generation i don't think switched i think they were like oh yeah them lot you know <clears throat> i said that uh the side of the road that i lived on um so i lived on a cul-de-sac but the main road that went you know at the end of the cul-de-sac we were on one side of it the herringo stadium side the other side was you know closer by a few feet to highbury so on our side of the road, you had to support Tottenham. And on the other side of the road, the people supported Arsenal almost exclusively. And and you saw that. You realised that when Arsenal or Tottenham were in any sort of like cup finals or whatever, because the bunting would be hung out, you know, right across. You literally saw one side of the road red and white or one side of the road blue and white. And I remember the oldest, these um, two twins in particular, who were like just maybe like 15 or 16, but they'd been, they'd been in Borstal, you know, they'd be, they'd both been in Borstal. They weren't the craze, but they were kind of like the craze for us. And they were like, you know, you don't want to go. You do not want to go to the dark side, which was um, on the other side of the seven sisters road. And so um, I think amongst the younger generation, it was sort of more clear that they were the enemy. Um, but the older generation, I can't remember them getting engaged in any of that sort of stuff. They were there
0: to watch football.
1: And support their team, obviously.
0: Back onto the subject of supporting your team, some of some of your fa- asking some sort of your favourite games and memories. And you mentioned the European Knights at Tottenham. Tottenham win the UEFA Cup in eighty three, eighty four, I think. Is that the sort of that sort of era or am I, or, or am I wrong on on that?
1: No, you're not wrong on that. But that period, I was just, I'd been in Sweden. Um, I went to college initially in Stockholm. So I missed out on about three years of, um, probably four years actually, of uh, football supporting between uh, 1978, 79 to about 82, 83. And it's funny enough, when I, um, at that point, I reverted back to Charlton because I had uh, I'd gone down to Charlton, down to the valley. I'm, I'm a North Londoner essentially now, but um, I w- went back down south and I met a group of guys who were like, you know, um, be- became my friends, became my true friends. And they were like, you need to come back down to the valley, mate. You need to start coming down to the valley. And so I started going to the valley again about 84. Eight, although the next three years I was still at university so I'd gone back maybe 87, 88 gone through the fallow period and the rebuilding of the valley and all of that and then started going back um, more seriously when I lived in Southeast London for a while and um, but as luck would have it I um, moved um, you know with my wife we brought home and where we are still now After all these years, so we've been here about 21, 22 years now. So let's say from about 2000, possibly about five miles away from uh, White Hart Lane as it was or Tottenham Stadium as it is. And um, it was easier, much more convenient to go to those matches. Um, So from about 2000, I started going again and I found a love, a different love for White Hart Lane because I was never really going to be fully committed as a supporter of Tottenham because, you know, I wasn't, I'm not that kid anymore. You know, I'm not the kid that was taken to these matches and felt uh, the Bonho me so much anymore. My heart still is with Charlton and, but I did I try to always get to the European games you see when you you've got to understand the landscape for those who haven't been to tottenham high street to watch a football match look you're talking about a real sort of old school run down high street for the most part it's changing now because of the new stadium but for the most part you're talking about a real sort of battleground of um of working class versus working class i would say it's not a battle of the classes it's uh, working class versus working class everybody trying to find a space or everybody trying to get respect everybody trying to own a piece of the real estate but not being able to and the you always know when you see a high street where sort of one out of every five shops is a betting shop or uh, one of out of every four shops is a fish and chip shop or you know, all these kind of unhealthy living stuff that you get when you are in that area. And there used to be a lot of pubs as well. Sorry, uh, James, you were trying to say I
0: was gonna say it's 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 chicken shop, it's pub, exactly. it's kebab shop, exactly. it's 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 betting shop, it's 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 a mini market, not like a Sainsbury's local or something exactly. like that. It's it's Mr. <laughs> it's Mr. Patel or whoever's running that, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. I had a good mate who lived on West Green Road and spent a fair fair amount of time down there. But it's it, it's an interesting high street and one that you know if you're not there on match day and you're there, you know it's late at night, you, you, it's one where you sort of feel like you have to have your wits about you as well. Well.
1: Um, I I don't because you know that's where I'm from yeah I don't uh, West Green Road that you talk about is a much more lively area that's yeah. closer to Seven Sisters station as you know and that ain't that's a fun little sort of uh, conglomeration of uh, sort of mini businesses And all of that, it's much more exciting there. And it's all changed now, by the way, as well. So, you know, it's getting gentrified, even as we speak, if it hasn't been already. But when you go further down towards White Hart Lane, you're actually going to a kind of a no man's land because you're going from N17 towards N18, which technically is Edmonton. You know, so you're actually probably closer, I would say, to Edmonton at White Hart Lane than you are to the centre of Tottenham, you know, which has got to be kind of more around where um, the old Tottenham Police Station is, well, closer anyway to Seven Sisters uh, Road. So you've got a little bit of a no man's land and it's even more uh, idiosyncratic there than it was in those badlands of N17s that you've just um, walked through. And the point I was going to make about it is that um, once you get to that, kind of a landscape and some team like um milan ac milan as we used to call it or inter milan are coming there or even some of the lesser teams in europe i've seen you know um a couple of, have i seen i think i saw porto there once uh portuguese and ajax i seem to remember going to ajax I remember taking some uh some uh, americans uh came over to visit me then but anyway the, on on first of all they're european nights and as you've already intimated those streets were dark and dingy of a night time suddenly it's all proper you can see the floodlights from ages and it's illuminating the whole area and there's a magic in the air as you're walking closer and closer everybody knows that this is something special i think with the Big Italian nights then. I think I've seen both AC and Inter Milan there. Maybe AC twice actually, Inter Milan once. I can't remember exactly all the matches, I've got to be honest. But um once you get there on a match like that, on a day like that, I remember seeing uh an in oh gosh, which was it? I remember going there to see a European match on a weekday, and there are weekday matches obviously as well. I remember going there to see a European match of a weekday night, and it was really the introduction to for a lot of uh, Spurs fans of both Dele Alli and Huming Son. You know, that was that match was where they really lit up the whole place. And everybody's asking, who's that bloke again? Who is he? Who is It's kind of like, where's he from? I, I, I certainly remember that about Delhi Alley. You know, you can almost not imagine it now. You see, not only have they lit up the whole area, but you've got players coming out of the woodwork who weren't your regular first 11 on on a Saturday because you've, you've either saved them or given the first 11 a rest to play this. Um, to, to play this European match, so those matches were always, um, I think the most exciting ones. When I was a kid, the most exciting matches that I saw that resonate with me at White Hart Lane. So this is going back to when I'm nine or ten years old. What we lived for was the, um, the the replays. I think Spurs. We're in a was it a replay? Was it a semi-final replay? A FA Cup semi-final replay? I can't remember, but um, they'd have these replays on again on school nights, and um, I seem to remember us bunking in anyway. But even if we had to pay ten p on a school night, but for some reason, those are the matches that are really brought me out of my shell and made me a proper proper supporter because they would do or do or die matches you know replays you've only got one more shot this is your final shot at it it's gotta it's gotta work somehow and so there's more of a kind of a a passion amongst the fans um, to make sure that you win and so on and um, I'm sorry I can't remember all the matches my mind's somewhere else but I do I do remember the incidents. though. I, I just remember those moments, you know.
0: It's. I, mean, I think you touch on something with cup football. Why I, mean, I know semi-finals are normal, neutral. Obviously, FA Cup are League Cup a bit, a bit different. But one of the shames of moving the, the semi-finals to Wembley—it's and, and- horrible.
1: It's horrible to go to see your club unless it's a cup final at Wembley. Because again, when they were building the new Tottenham Stadium. Um, I kept getting tickets. It was mad. I kept getting tickets to go and see Tottenham at Wembley because obviously they couldn't fill the stadium. And I know a woman who is um, quite high up in the Tottenham hierarchy and, you know, she would send me tickets to, you know, go and uh, sit not in the director's box, the club box or whatever it was. And I didn't feel it. I I went, I remember this one, I do remember seeing... um, Manchester United versus Tottenham, I, I think that was semi-final of the FA Cup and it was on at Wembley and surrounded by a load of Manx who have got nothing against, but again, you know, when they start dishing out the tickets, people get all over the place and um, things can get a little bit tense. Uh, and what really pissed me off the most really pissed me off. I thought this couldn't have happened if it was White Hart Lane, that the smallest man on the entire pitch, the smallest man on the entire pitch scores the winner with his head. <laughs> that was, and not only that, he's a former flipping gooner, Alexis Sanchez. And I, I I, I mean, at that point, I didn't want to go anymore. You know, I just thought, why am I going to Wembley to see a football match with a local team you know that I've watched their matches since I was eight years old I didn't feel any attachment to it whatsoever cup final day as you know is different and also internationals are different because uh, I remember the old Wembley very much and um, going to see a few internationals there the one you know England versus Nigeria sticks out in my mind because you know of the Nigerian fans singing, "Oh, we are asking is give us a go. And there I was amongst all the England fans as well. I felt very uncomfortable. Anyway, that's another story. But yeah, you, you've got to stick, a, a club, a, the reason why this Ground Jewels um, podcast is so apt is because when you either support or you follow a club, that um, that home ground has a special significance, you know, a special, and that's at the Valley, at White Hart Lane, at the Tottenham Stadium, at Wembley, wherever you are. Uh, sorry, with the exception of Wembley, but even there you can make it, um, if it is a cup match, you can make that moment your own. But it, there's a lot of soul, a lot of spiritual connection between you, um, the
0: match and the club and the stadium. I agree with you. And so you've specifically nominated White Hart Lane, but we're also referencing the the, the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which as architecture and fan experience is fantastic. I've been there for for, some NFL games and it it really is just, you know, a wonderful stadium. How do you feel about that? Because the club did something unusual. They they didn't have to do. They built it in virtually the exactly same place as White Hart Lane so it's the same place but it's also different
1: well this goes back to what I was telling you about the landscape um it really pissed me off when uh the owners of Tottenham were considering taking over the london stadium how can you call yourself tottenham i mean you can get away with it as west ham because Stratford is west ham you know it is just down the road from west ham that is still a local club but how how can you call yourself tottenham and then go off to east london to it pissed me off but what pissed me off the most was that they had closed down they'd bought up and closed down quite a lot of the um the buildings uh the shop yeah a lot of buildings and shops were closed down boarded up and closed down because tottenham were initially buying up the real estate because they had planned to have um a new stadium years ago. And then this London stadium became available after 2012 and the Olympics. They didn't know what to do with it. And Tottenham put in a bid. And so they had made us live in um, some kind of half shut squalor on the high street for a few years, quite a few years, as you know, and suddenly they were going to say, well, stuff you lot, we're going somewhere else. Well, no, hang on a second, it doesn't work like that. And certainly that's not the way uh, fan allegiance is built. See, a lot of the Tottenham fans now, they don't live in Tottenham, you know. They do not live in Tottenham. They're coming out, particularly from Hertfordshire, a lot of the Tottenham fans that were like, Tottenham through and through when I grew up. You know, imagine if you've been following Tottenham for 50 years, you were living in Tottenham at that point, and now you've moved out to the leafy not suburbs a bit further out than the suburbs but the leafy surrounding areas of Hertfordshire and they they bus themselves in or drive themselves in or go by a train or whatever to get in and so on but they still have that connection because most of them grew up in Tottenham or else their parents grew up in Tottenham or whatever that's what it means to them now. um the only place to be if you're a Tottenham supporter is obviously at the Park Lane end. If you can get a ticket for that, well done. Because that's the amazing experience that the London Stadium has, you know, on the South Stands. Um, and Park Lane end was always uh, a quite significant end of the ground for Tottenham supporters anyway. And um, the way that they've done it with this, you know, one tier going all the way up, you know, it, it, there is no better place to be, and you know, fans are standing up. It's like it's like terracing for fans, you know, and it's brought back a little bit of that terracing atmosphere that we didn't appreciate enough when we were there at the time. But when 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 it went for safety and security reasons, uh, we suddenly realised, oh shit, that was a really, really, really unique experience. And it's brought some of that back, and you do feel much more part of a, a tribe. I mean, I've I've gone there, and I've only been there a couple of times, by the way, but I've gone there and um, reverted to um, <laughs> some kind of type and started swearing and stuff like that as well, because everybody around you is just, My elder brother, who for years, and I'm not going to labour on this point because he didn't speak to me for quite a while after I sort of questioned why he was from Tottenham and um was going up to Old Trafford every other weekend to to see Man United play uh, so now he started coming he's come home basically he has come home the football has come home and he goes there now my older brother is the kind of guy anyway But I remember being in a in a pub with him once when it was uh Man United versus Tottenham and the whole pub was Tottenham because we were in Tottenham or we're nearby Tottenham. So the whole pub was Tottenham and uh, Teddy Sheringham had gone from Tottenham to Man United and they were, you know, chatting. Oh, Teddy, Teddy went to Man United and he won. Fuck all. (laughs) And, my brother stands up. My brother stands up in that pub, and he couldn't take that. And he goes, "Oh, Teddy, Teddy went to Man United. And he won everything, or won, you know, or stuff the Spurs or whatever he said." But he basically everybody just kept quiet, looked at him, and I thought, uh, "Should we leave right now? Should we leave right now?" But anyway, he goes to he goes to um he goes to uh, the park lane end, and he he reverts to type as well. So I know it's a tribal thing, mate. I can't explain it. You'd have to ask Sigmund Freud, but that works. Now, when you're inside, it's so completely different from um, White Hart Lane. It's so completely, even the football on the pitch, maybe it's the perspective or something, it's so completely different. Uh, from White Hart Lane. White Hart Lane, you were quite close, actually, to the action. I, I feel here you're not quite as close. Maybe it's the way that the Park Lane end goes up. So you're you're looking from a sort of a perspective that you wouldn't normally be looking at, the way that just slides up a little bit like uh, the new Wembley to some extent. You know, these grounds nowadays, they go up so sharply that you actually need a lift or escalators to take you up. And that's bonkers. That is absolutely bonkers. But, hey, that's the way these things are. Um, Most of the people that I've talked to, I think, I don't think I've spoken to a single person that doesn't prefer the new stadium. And so the people who mention, and I've got a couple of old school friends who are hardcore, hardcore, you know, um, Tottenham supporters who echo back to the old stadium but i think really really and truly um they're grateful for the experience there's twice as many people going into the tottenham stadium as there were um at the old stadium and you can just about despite that you can just about find the odd place to park your car <laughs> twice as many people imagine
0: that well you, you've got to tell me where that is <laughs> Do you know how many Obviously people... we're not gonna broadcast that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Do you know how
1: many people would hang, draw, and 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 quarter me if I was to reveal that? But yeah, 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 yeah. And the joke about it as well is where I get away with parking my car, um you know, like football grounds, all these people sort of appropriate any spare space and they put on a high vis jacket and they make out as if they're legit charging you a tenner, a spot. Well, the where I park, the, the, um, the bad boys are people that I've known from back in the day, so I get to park for free, but it will cost you a tenner.
0: Not only are you getting more than twice as uh, tw- twice as many people in the stadiums as, as, as you used to do, you're getting three times as many managers as as, as you did for, in normal seasons.
1: As they did. Don't include me in this. They Don't did. Don't include oh, me in this.
0: <laughs> he's in pointing to the Charlton <laughs> exactly. clock again. Exactly. I wonder whether that tribal thing, in terms of in terms of encourage getting you to swear and all of that stuff, has had a had any influence on you, uh, maybe in the background, because you're you're working on a new book, and I'm gonna I'm gonna work at our, it's Ephraim's, and it's an amazing story. Well,
1: before I tell you a little bit about it, let me just say when I talk about Tottenham and my spiritual home being there and the passion I have for it. You've got to remember in uh, 1970, 1970, our family experienced an immense tragedy and uh, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club supported our family at that point. So whatever else I say about Tottenham and, you know, my love for Charlton Athletic, you've got to keep that in the background this football club came and supported us. And this was 1970. They didn't have to. They didn't have to. And we were, I I am so grateful for that support. And it still resonates with me today. That I can never repay the club for. So I'm not saying anything bad about uh, Tottenham at all. The book is a story that is kind of landscapes those days. Because um uh, basically, do you know it's a true story. Let me say that first of all. It's a true story, but for all sorts of legal reasons I have to um frame it as a fiction. So I've called it a noir moi rather than a memoir. <laughs> and um <laughs> and um I will figure out what a noir moi means at some point when I can flip and pronounce the thing. But um what I mean by that is that it's a memoir. It's a kind of a fictional memoir and it takes you on the dark side of life a lot. Um, I'd forgotten, it's a true story, James, I'd forgotten that I was once arrested for a murder and I was um, being fitted up by the police. It's not the kind of thing that you talk about in polite company. So I suspect that something in my mind triggered the um, the you know my memory to forget about it so i didn't even mention it to my wife and then i was building doing some building work at the bottom of my garden and then i ran into my house the penny dropped and people had been saying to me for years Dotton, you should write your story mate you, you know you've done so many things and i wasn't really feeling it I'm not the kind of person that thinks i've got anything to write about about myself And suddenly I remember this story. I ran into the house from the bottom of the garden. You can ask my wife. I ran into the house and I said, Carol, 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 i figured out what I've got to write about. You know, I've figured it out. And I I might be radio dotting to a lot of people, but actually um, my heart is in writing and publishing. Anyway, um, so I had to tell my wife about the story at that point. She goes, okay, okay, a little bit suspiciously. And I immediately knew how I would write it. Cause the problem with the memoir is, you know, it becomes a kind of a, as Holden Caulfield from The Catcher in the Rye would say, a kind of a David Copperfield bollocks. You know, this is my mother, this is my father, this is what they did, and this is who I am, kind of thing. So I figured out a way to write it, which was because I'd I'd obliterated it from my mind. I was thinking, well, the only way I can really write about this is to go back and ask the different years of my life. Um, was it you that done it? Was it you? Because basically I got arrested for a murder. They tried to fit me up. The guy that did the murder was somebody that I knew. He served time, managed to wangle his time in a mental hospital. So got out relatively quickly. When he got out, he said to me, well, you know, you, you did the crime, you know, you did the crime. But I I, I just took the blame to save your ass." And I was like, fuck no. Anyway, that was part of, I think, the suppression of the memory. And during the pandemic, uh, the first pandemic, I had a bit of a stressful time. I-, I worked every night throughout the pandemic. It was a little bit stressful, I've got to be honest. And I had a bit of a blowout with one of my neighbours, bloke next door, um, who objected to me playing music in my garden. And I thought, something's happening. Something's happening to me. Um, I'm not a violent person by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't get into violence with him, but I got into like some heated words. I told the BBC about it and they went and got me a sort of a a psychologist or psychiatrist to, um, to uh, talk to me. And this psychiatrist concluded after his, um, you know, his uh, counseling concluded that Dawson has, some you know uh, suppressed memory that he needs to resolve so i tell the story of how i'm trying to first of all find out who's trying to kill me and also find out if i had anything to do with any murder at any point and i brought all the years of my life together to see if any of them know anything about it and uh yeah that's a noir, noir for you that's f freeze
0: i don't know how you do your job because i'm just sitting there listening to what you say and i'm like i have no next question it's just mind-boggling I'm sure there's other people listening to this who go how can you suppress a memory that that significant um but I'm glad you're working through it and getting the chance to talk about it because it's sa- it sounds well, I mean to me it sounds awful but you're, you're sat there with a, a massive smile on your face I don't oh, you well, obviously worked worked for it
1: no no there's been a lot of pain I mean there's a lot of pain not so much about the arrest and the police trying to fit me up. I don't have pain about that. but I have pain about everything else around, particularly when you visit parts of your life that, you know, there's there's tragedy around it Um, and you think of all the missed opportunities. So this is a book of dialogue. So it's not an experimental book, but I do try and write, something that people won't have read anything like this before not just the story but the structure so there's no descriptive narrative there's no descriptive you know there's no I was walking on a road and blah 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 and the sun was shining and all the all those boring bits have been stripped back so the only thing you get on this in this book is dialogue between all the ages of my life and the ages of my life interacting, they've got lots of questions for each other. You know, my 15-year-old gets, uh, or 15, as the character's called, 15 gets a lot of stick from the others because he's the one that got chucked out of school. And the olders are saying, look, if it wasn't for you, you know, imagine what we could have achieved. You fucking set us back a few years. And 15 is saying, well, fuck you. You know, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've had to put through. I didn't intend to get chucked out of school. It fucking happened. And um, there are lots of questions like that that make you think of the lost opportunities. The lost opportunities. You know, when my father died in 2017, one of my younger brothers said, all I can think of was the lost or the missed opportunities. And that's what, you know, when you try and sum up a person's life, it is a series of missed opportunities as well as you know well taken opportunities as football is as you know. do you see how I did that
0: I did it's very good it's the, it's the it's the it's as much about the path not traveled as the path we travel isn't it
1: <laughs> It is indeed indeed, and so you know f- f- football is life, and life sometimes is like a football. You get kicked around a lot. <laughs>
0: What a fantastic chat that was with Dottam. That was a very personal story of what White Hartley meant to him. And I loved how the ground meant different things to him at different stages of his life. And I think that's going to be an increasingly common theme that we'll see explored as we talk to people who move around for school or work or indeed love. Their relationship with their ground understandably changes. For more Dottam, there's always the On the Continent podcast, the Brazilian Shirt Name podcast, or his Radio 5 Live show which is one of the few benefits of developing insomnia. Or, of course, the book Ephraise, when that comes out. A lot of people have commented on the podcast artwork. I think it's great. It's a homage to Craven Cottage and that beautiful ground, and it was created by the brilliant Luke Williamson, whose work you can see, and importantly, you can purchase, at lukewilliamsonart.com. Luke has kindly given us a few free prints to give away as prizes, And details of that giveaway will be launched on our social media channels next week. So if you want to be the first to find out, follow us at The Ground Jewels. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and if I'm feeling especially brave later this week, we'll be on TikTok as well. And finally, if anyone thinks we're just a football podcast, I need to stop you right there. Next week, we'll be having our first non-football ground submitted as a ground jewel. So please join us next week as we have another brilliant guest. Until next time.